All right, guys, good to be back with you this morning, and I'm excited to open up Romans chapter 8. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and us diving into Romans chapter 8 as a church is very purposeful right now because I think that Romans 8 uniquely speaks to what is happening in our culture. And so from my perspective, what's going on in our culture right now is that as the church, we have become more isolated from each other than we have been in recent memory. And the Bible says that when we get isolated from each other, we have a tendency to seek after our own desires. And so there's new sin patterns in our lives, and we just are struggling more than ever with anxiety. But then you add on top of that anxiety that there is just such a zeal coming from our culture for everyone to take action and to do what is right, specifically with issues of racial equality and with justice. And those of us who have a sensitive conscience, we take that call to action and specifically this reality that the church has been complicit in many sins in the past and with many sins in the present by not speaking up. And we start to feel this sense that we don't measure up. And many of us, we feel this on a normal, everyday, regular basis. We battle condemnation in our normal lives, but all of those things are sort of spotlighted in our current cultural moment. And so we can feel this low level and sometimes screaming level that we are not right. And that because we don't measure up, that we are condemned. And what Romans 8 brings into the picture is in the midst of all of this bad news about ourselves and about our world, it brings good news. And so here's the good news for all of us who name the name of Christ this morning. It's that ordinary Christians, regular old Christians, not superhero Christians, ordinary Christians are not condemned. And so we're going to look at three reasons for this in the text. Three reasons we are not condemned. The first reason is that we struggle. Okay, we're going to back up a little bit, give you a little context as we go into Romans 8 verse 1. So we're actually going to go back a little bit to Romans 7 verse 24 and read through 8 verse 1. So it says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what we're catching in Romans chapter 7 is Paul at the end of a really long description of the ordinary Christian life. And his continual refrain throughout Romans chapter 7 has been, I keep doing what I don't 
want to do. And the very things that I do, I hate them. He's saying as a mature Christian, that there is this battle going on inside of him between now what he wants to do, which is to obey God and follow after him, and what he actually does and thinks, which isn't pleasing to God and isn't something that he wants to do. So then he finally gets, it's like he's exhausted going through this process of self-examination and he gets to Romans 7, verse 24, and he basically just says, I'm an awful person, wretched man that I am. Not that I was before I met Jesus, but that I am as a growing and maturing Christian. He's saying, even after you become a Christian, you still can recognize as you examine yourself that you are currently an awful person. So he comes to this conclusion I'm an awful person. He's like, who's going to save me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, even as a maturing Christian, I'm an awful person and I still need Jesus to rescue me and to save me. So then you think, okay, This is a turning point in the life of Paul. Like he's come to this new dependence on Jesus. And so now as a result of this new dependence on Jesus, he's going to move on to a life of holiness and a life of total victory in Jesus. Because of course, when we think about the apostle Paul, we don't think of a struggling Christian. We think of a victorious Christian. But here's what he says. Even after crying out to Jesus, even after recognizing how awful he is. He says this, the second half of verse 25. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He's saying, I'm awful. I cried out to Jesus. And then I went to re-examine my life and I'm still awful. There is still this battle going on inside of me between the mind of Christ, the new mind that I've been given by God and my flesh, that is my old sinful nature. So what he's saying is something really important. Conversion does not dislodge your old sinful nature, what old theologians called your indwelling sin. And so here is what the maturing Christian life looks like. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It is an internal battle between your new nature and the spirit of God and your old self. But this is the really surprising thing that the apostle Paul concludes. He says, in light of this struggle and in light of this battle, here's my conclusion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what he concludes is that this struggle, this fight, this self-hatred 
This internal battle is actually evidence that you're really a Christian. See, if you weren't a Christian, there wouldn't be this battle. There wouldn't be this self-loathing and these moments where you're like, wretched man that I am, I am an awful person, I need Jesus to save me. No, there would be a sense of self-righteousness and there would be a sense that not, I keep doing what I don't want to do, but just, I'm glad to do what I want to do. See, our culture says you just look inside of yourself and you look at your desires and whatever those desires are, you just do those. And to be true to yourself is to live according to your desires. But when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, what happens is you look at your desires and you're like, those are terrible. That is awful. My desires are opposed to the law of God and the will of God. And we look at our desires and instead of bowing down to our desires and listening to our desires and living according to our desires, we begin to oppose our desires. And so there begins to be this clash and this struggle. And so if there is that struggle in your life, particularly in this culture mo- cultural moment, Don't be discouraged. Rejoice. There's no condemnation for you. Because the the battle is evidence that you are in Jesus. And this is because of how God saves us. See, God's plan for our salvation is not to just zap us into Christ-likeness. God, if he wanted to, could in a moment, he will do this at some point, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he could just make you exactly like Jesus. But here's how God intends to transform you. This is what Ephesians 1.14 says. It says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Which means, here's the Drew Stevenson translation of this. This is dangerous. (laughs) Here we go. It's this. You're only half saved. At best, you're only half saved. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your future and full salvation. So imagine this illustration. Imagine that your parents are incredibly wealthy, and they've told you from a young age that one point you're going to get all of their wealth. And just to show you that at some point you're going to get all of their wealth, they occasionally make a deposit into your checking account of $50,000. An occasional deposit of $50,000. Now let's say they have a billion dollars. $50,000 is nowhere near your full inheritance. It's a deposit that's guaranteeing a future inheritance. And likewise, God has given us the Holy Spirit. He has placed the Holy Spirit into our sinful flesh. That is within our body, which also contains this indwelling sin nature. And so we can rejoice that we are not condemned, not because there is no sin in our lives, 
but because there is a war within us. So the struggle is counterintuitively the first indicator that you are not condemned. Okay, but that's not all. The Christian life is not just a struggle. There's a second indicator that we are not condemned. Those of us who are in Christ, and that is that we are free. Look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 8. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, that word for, it means because. So he said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For or because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see what Paul is doing? He's already made one argument with us to show us that we are not condemned. And he's making a second argument with us. Why is he doing this? Why is he at such pains to convince us that there is no condemnation for us? There's no sense of judgment from God over us. It's because Paul knows that we are so prone to self-condemnation and to believe that God is punishing us, even though we have believed in Jesus. And he wants to remind us here that it's because God has set us free. And he set us free by changing the rules of the game. Here's what I mean by that. The law of the spirit of life has now replaced the law of sin and death. So let me just briefly explain what each of these laws is. So when we think of law, we think of list of rules. And when we think of list of rules and we're talking about the law of sin and death, we're right, okay? So basically the law of sin and death says God gave us the 10 commandments and a lot of other commandments in the Old Testament. And those commandments are to be obeyed with perfection. And so what the law of sin and death reasons is, do this and you will live. That's the basic message of the Old Testament. Do this and you will live. And so what we tend to do is we tend to look at the old law. So we look at a commandment in the Ten Commandments, such as do not murder. And we say, I have never literally killed anyone before. And thus, we sentence ourselves to no condemnation because we have not literally murdered anyone. But then Jesus comes along and he interprets that commandment, do not murder for us. And he says, if you're even angry with somebody in your heart, you have committed murder. And then all of a sudden, we realize that we have broken God's commandment. The commandment that Paul says really killed him, really cut him to the heart and convinced him that he was a lawbreaker was the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. The 10th commandment is 
don't even want what other people have. If you're on social media, you have broken the 10th commandment, okay? So if you even want what other people have, you have broken the law of God. So the law of sin and death says, do this and you will live. And the problem is, we don't do this. We don't obey God's commandments. We disobey God's commandments. And so we need a different type of law to set us free. Because that law, which is good, brings death to us because we respond to it in rebellion. And so here's what the law of the spirit of life says. It doesn't say do this and you will live. It says live and you will do this. See, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we are given a new power through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and he wakes us up. He takes dead people and makes them alive so that we're given a new heart and a new spirit. This heart of stone is taken out of us and we're giving the a real heart, a heart that longs for God, that loves God, and that wants to follow after God. And so we're set free from trying to obey God's law by our own power and through our own efforts. And we're set free to obey God actually by his power through his spirit. So we're infused with new life. So think about this illustration with me for a moment. Imagine if you were out in the woods and you're trying to cut down this giant tree and you've got an ax, but you're like me. You're not very strong. You're low in the muscle department. And so you grab this ax and you're just day after day, you're just trying to cut down the tree. Now there's nothing wrong with the ax. It's a good, sharp ax. The problem is that the axe in combination with your own physical weakness makes the axe to be an inadequate tool to cut down the tree. Now that is like trying to obey God in your own effort through the law. The law, like the axe, is a perfectly good tool, but you are weak and so you can't obey it. So imagine that you're trying as hard as you can to cut down the tree with the ax and somebody comes along and says, I don't think that's going to work. And so they just give you this giant brand new chainsaw filled with a full tank of gas. And all of a sudden, you start up that chainsaw and you take that chainsaw and within just a few moments, you're able to cut the tree down. See, what you need in that moment is you need a new power. You need a tool that is able to do what you cannot do. And here's God's plan to set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death is he gives you a new power so that you are able to do from the heart 
what you could not do before. And so although as a Christian, yes, there is this internal struggle in us, we will continue to do what we do not want to do, but there is also this new power. Scripture says that old things have passed away and new things have come, that we are a new creation in Christ. And so there is real, visible fruit in our lives. There is progress that is made. There is a death to life experience because the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and there is a measure of wanting to obey the law of God so that we actually are not rebellious against God any longer at the core of our being, but our deepest desire is to live for him and follow after him. Okay, so, so far, what we've seen is there's these two evidences in our lives that we are in Christ Jesus and that we are no longer condemned. But both of these evidences so far have been subjective. And what I mean by that is they're based on personal experience. So what I'm asking you to do is examine your life. Is there this very real battle and fight in your life that indicates that you're one of those who is not condemned? And secondly, is, this, is there this very real life and freedom in your life that indicates that you are a child of God and not condemned? But both of them are subjective, and I'm really thankful that Paul included this third reason that there is no condemnation. And the reason I'm super thankful for this one, and it's been particularly meaningful to me, is because it's not subjective. It's actually objective. It is an historical event. And so what Paul is going to do is he is going to ground our faith, not in our subjective experience, but in the finished work of Christ. So it's good for us to examine our subjective experience, but it is not good for us to ground our faith there. We need more solid footing than that. And so Paul is asking us to ground our faith in what God has done. And so the third reason that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is that God has done it. God has done what we could not do. Listen to these beautiful couple verses as Paul unpacks them for us. Verses three and four, it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if you are wrestling with condemnation, if you are struggling with believing that God loves you and that he is for you, and you have a tendency to believe that God is against you, I want you to hear these words. God has done it. He's done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. Here's what he has done. He sent his own son. 
God sent Jesus to the earth in love for us as our perfect substitute. That's why Paul says here that Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh. See, we have this struggle and this battle because even after we're converted to Jesus, we still have this indwelling sin. We are still at heart rebels. We still disobey God's law. And Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, from all outward appearances, it looked as if he was just like us. But the fundamental and foundational difference between us and Jesus is he had no indwelling sin. There was no desire in him to disobey the will of God. But he always did what is pleasing to God. And so what Jesus did as our perfect substitute, the reason that he came is described in the last phrase of verse 3. He came as our perfect substitute to condemn sin in the flesh. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus, the only perfect person who's ever lived, died an unjust death. What I mean by that is he got a punishment that he did not deserve. So the meaning of the cross is that the perfect person took the punishment for the awful people. Jesus climbed up on the cross, not because he deserved to die, but because you and I deserve to die. So God's way of dealing with the reality that we are deserving of punishment is not to sweep it under the rug, not to let it go. So when you feel this sense like, I deserve to be condemned, you're right. You do. And so God's way of dealing with that was actually to punish Jesus in your place. But it's even better than that. He didn't just punish Jesus in your place, but this was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So I think this verse has a double meaning. What I mean by that is, I think it means that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us in the sense that Jesus performed this righteousness for us so that when God looks at us, he sees perfection, not sin. And it also means that Jesus died in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled us in us in the sense that it is transformative and changes us into the image of Jesus. And so what I'm begging you to do is to stop believing that you have to do what God requires in order for you to live and instead to receive with the empty hands of faith what God has done. Let me illustrate this for you quickly. I had a couple friends who were twin brothers and both these brothers went to Purdue University. And one of them was really good at math and the other was really good at English. And so here's what they did one semester. 
they signed up for all of the same classes. And the brother who was bad at math would have the twin brother who was good at math sit in all of the lectures for him in class, take all of the tests and do all of the homework for him. And so they just switched places with each other. And the reason that they were able to do that is because they looked exactly like each other. And so they were able to substitute for one another, which is a really bad idea and really sinful. But it's a really good illustration of what Jesus has done for us. So you can either sit in the class of life and represent yourself and try and try and try and fail and fail and fail. Or you can trust that Jesus will sit in the lecture of life for you and that where you would fail, he has succeeded. You can let him take on the burden of living under God's law for you. You can let him take the punishment for all of your sins and then you can let him credit his A plus into your account so you can stand before God today by faith without works righteous in God's sight. Okay, so what would happen if we believed this? If we believed that although we are awful people at heart, that we have failed to obey God, that we have been rebels against him, and that he has forgiven us and loved us and taken the punishment for us. What if we actually believe that? Here's what I think would happen. There would be no moral outrage in our hearts. Because those who have been forgiven much forgive much. Those who know that they are deserving of condemnation refuse to condemn others because they have not been condemned by God. How different would we look in these isolating times, in these times where everybody is mad at somebody else for not doing something? How different would we look if our response to those around us would be love and grace and forgiveness. I think if we were characterized by that, that we would be the salt of the earth, that we would be the light of the world, that people would be drawn and attracted to us because of our love for each other and our love for them. Let's pray that that would be true. Jesus, thank you for this declaration over us that there is no condemnation. And I pray that those who are struggling to believe this would see that you in love came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin and that you condemned our sin in your flesh. So we don't have to condemn ourselves or believe that you are mad at us try to punish ourselves in some way, but instead we can receive with the empty hands of faith what you have done. And God, would you change us? Would you melt our hearts with this reality so that we're able to extend that same kind of grace and forgiveness and love to those around us? I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.